you have your Bibles, take them and turn them to Mark chapter 5. As we continue our series in Mark, after we took a short little break from it the past two weeks, thank you Paul for bringing the uh, word last week, and Paul's not here today, so thank you Paul. Um, sorry, I just came to that realization as I said. We're uh, looking at verses 21 through 43, rather large passage. I'm excited about it though, I think, uh, I, I pray that God's going to use this passage to, to comfort our hearts and strengthen our hearts and, and show us Jesus clearly. I'm really excited about it. I want to start off by talking about my trip to New Orleans a couple weeks ago. I found myself in a desperate situation. Some of you may have heard this story, some of you may have not, where I was in the airport and I uh, went to baggage claim to get my bag and as I see it coming down the ramp, I'm like, oh good, there's my bag. Um, and a man grabbed it and walked off with it. And I'm talking from me to this microphone. I, I was walking, he grabbed it, walked off. And he was so confident in his grabbing of that bag, I just had to assume we must have this, the same bag. So I didn't say anything to him. It was just a split second. I could have said, sir, but I didn't. I thought, the same bag, so mine's going to be coming down no time. It never came. That was my bag. And so here I find myself in New Orleans uh, with... Nothing. And so I'm in a desperate situation. So I talked to the airline. They can't really do anything for me. I, I called Chelsea. She couldn't really do anything for me. L looked up the closest Walmart. Uh, I was in a desperate situation. There was nothing I could do but just bank on this man and his mercy who was so bold to take my bag to bring it back. And one thing I did not put in my SBC report um, that missed the cut was how desperately hot it was in New Orleans. This is not the place to have no deodorant. Uh, <laughs> this is not the place to have no extra underwear, you understand? Like this is a place where it was hot and muggy and I was desperate. Thankfully, um, if you want to know how that story ends, ask me later. But more seriously, uh, I know, so we're talking about desperate situations this morning. I know that's a funny desperate situation, even though it was desperate. But there are some people in here who are, are in some real, tough, desperate situations. And if you're in that place, I'm so glad you're here. Because I think there's a lot of hope to find in this passage. Because what we'll learn today is that Jesus Christ saves people in desperate situations. Okay? We'll see it in three points the awful crisis, the excruciating delay, and the cheerful surprise. Let's read the whole passage up front. This is God's word for us this morning. Starting in Mark 5, chapter, um, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, 
The flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. It's God's word. Let's go to him now and thank him for it. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we can hear it this morning. Give us ears to hear. God, I pray for every single set of ears in this room. That you'll open them so that we can receive the word and apply it to our lives. God, I pray for every single set of eyes in here that you can open their eyes so they can see Jesus is truly glorious. God, I pray for every bored heart in this room, God, that you will awaken them to the glory of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for every desperate heart that there will be comfort found in the ability of Jesus and the heart of Jesus and the authority of Jesus that we see so clearly in this passage. All for your glory, Lord. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Point number one, the awful crisis. Verses 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So in verse 21, we see that Jesus crossed back to the other side. I know it's been a couple weeks. We had a little marchitis, but if you remember, Jesus taught in some parables, and he said, let's cross to the other side, hit the storm. You all remember the storm? He stopped the storm with, his, with, his, um, with some words. And then he went over to the other side to the Decapolis, ran into one unclean um, man who had... Thousands of demons in him, named Legion, healed that guy. And then everybody said, we don't want you here. Why don't you go back? So here in verse um, 21, we see that Jesus crosses back over. Long trip for one person, but Jesus thought it was worth it. Crosses back over, and he's back where he originally began. And he gets a much better reception than he did in chapter 5, verse 1, um, where there's a great crowd about him. So 
trip he just went on, nobody wanted him. He's back in town and everybody is gathering about him. And out of the crowd comes a very prestigious man named Jairus. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. Synagogue, just think Jewish church. So um, this is one of the elders or pastors of the local church in the area. So he would be respected, well-known. People would know who he is. However, just as always, as you should know, reputation does not prevent you from desperate situations. You can be super well-respected, super well-known, super wealthy. It doesn't matter. You can be put into a desperate situation. And Jairus here is facing an awful crisis. So Jairus sees Jesus, breaks through the great crowd, falls at Jesus' feet to implore Jesus, which is very similar to the situation we saw with Jairus. Remember, um, um, I mean, the situation we saw with Legion. Legion falls before Jesus and says, what do you have to do with me? So he falls before Jesus with this desperate situation. What is it? Verse 23, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. The story has been heavy for me all week, trying to put myself in Jairus' shoes. Um, since I have a daughter who is almost one year old. Um, of course, we see in verse 42 that Jairus' daughter is 12 years old, but it does not in any way diminish the awful crisis, the desperate situation that Jairus finds himself in. His daughter is at death's door, and there is nothing that he can do about it. He's desperate, completely unable to save his own daughter. The only option he has is to fall down at the feet of Jesus and beg. So what he says, which isn't a bad place to be, by the way. Here's what he says. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now this is a good statement of faith, is it not? Just put your hands on this little girl and she'll be made well. Nothing could be done for Jairus' daughter, but Jairus believed that if Jesus would simply touch her, she would be made well and live. This is a good example of faith. Jesus listens to Jairus' request in verse 24, and he went with him. Jesus says, okay, let's go. Begins the trip to Jairus' house to lay his hands on her daughter. And as he travels, notice here in verse 24 at the end, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. The one thing I want you to know about this trip, so the, the trip begins. They're, they're on their way to Jairus' house to heal this daughter. And I want you to consider the urgency of this trip. Jairus' daughter is not simply sick. He says that she's at the point of death, at death's door. So there's, they don't have much time. This, the, the clock is running out. It's like you're, you're in an airport and you're trying to make a connection and you're running out of time and you're rushing through. You, you, every minute matters in this moment. But so much more than missing a flight, we're talking about your daughter's life is at risk. And as they travel, this huge crowd surrounds him and this leads to my second point, the excruciating delay. In the midst of the crowd was a woman who was also in a desperate situation. Look how her situation is described in verses 25 and 26. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather it grew worse. You can't help but read those two verses and not feel sorry for this woman, right? What a terrible situation. Consider her suffering with me for just a moment. First, 
Consider the physical suffering of this woman for 12 years, which is just as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. Both 12 years here, right? 12-year daughter and 12 years of suffering. So she has suffered physically for 12 years. Consider to be discharging blood for over a decade with no end in sight. Second, consider the emotional suffering of this woman for 12 years. To get hope from a doctor only to be let down. To get excited about another idea, another way out possibly only to be disappointed. The emotional toll of up, down, up, down, no end in sight. Third, consider the financial suffering of this woman for 12 years, which is a real type of suffering. We have no idea how much money this woman had before, but we know how much she had in this story. Look what it says, and had spent all that she had. You know the stress of finances. You, you have felt it before. So in this woman's desperation, she has spent all of her money and had absolutely nothing to show for it. So she still has all the physical suffering. She still has all the emotional suffering. She still, and now she's sitting there with no more resources to give. She's in an absolutely desperate situation. Finally, number four, consider the religious suffering of this woman for 12 years. What I, what I mean by that is since she had this discharge of blood, as you could read in Leviticus 15, she would be ceremonially unclean which means she couldn't be touched by anyone, which means she couldn't go to worship. She was, she was cut off from society for 12 years. So this woman, suffering physically, emotionally, financially, religiously, this woman is an outcast of society filled with shame in, in a different spot than Jairus, if you notice. Jairus is more well-respected. He's well-known. He, he's, he's a pastor. But this woman is, is kind of the opposite situation, the lowest of the low. But she is still in a desperate situation. But her, her hope comes from verse 27, where it says, She had heard the reports about Jesus. Maybe you're here in the room and you've heard reports about Jesus and what he can do. So in verses 27 and 28, we see her plan. What she's going to do is while the crowd thronged about Jesus, there's this huge crowd, she was going to slip in behind him and touch his garment and her thought was, as we see in verse 28, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This woman's faith is an example to follow. She believes that Jesus is so powerful that she could just touch something that is touching him and she would be healed. That's good faith. But what I want to suggest to you is that this is not a perfect faith. She's not a perfect example of faith. Why? Um, some commentators would, would suggest that her, her plan could be seen as a little superstitious. Um, There's no direct command to go touch Jesus' clothes. Does that make sense? So she has this idea, but more, more importantly, notice that all she wanted was to get the power of Jesus without the person of Jesus. Her plan was to slip in, unknown, touch Jesus, and get away. She wanted to, you know, um, just get this blessing from Jesus without knowing Jesus. She wanted to slip up behind him in the crowd, get healed, and then disappear. You see that? So she did have faith, but I would say it's an imperfect faith. that she, she had room to grow. But this imperfect example of faith should be a great encouragement to us today. Why? Because even though she didn't have a perfect faith, she still received healing. 
It's not so much the strength or purity of our faith. It's the object of our faith that matters. That's what we see in this story. To illustrate it, let me say faith is like getting on a ferry. Like a boat, not like the little bug. Um, Faith is like getting on a ferry. You may feel really comfortable getting on a ferry, or you might be full of panic and getting seasick. But faith is getting on the boat and depending on that boat to get you to the destination. Whoever gets on the ferry gets to the destination despite how they feel while they're on the boat. So here in this story, we see the woman's faith was not perfect. It needed improvement. But this woman's faith worked. She had this idea, I'm just going to touch Jesus because I believe in him so much that if I touch him, I can get out and I'll be completely healed. That wasn't a perfect plan, but it worked because her faith was in the right place. Her faith had the right object, Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God. This is good news for us this morning because in this room we have varying levels of faith, do we not? Some people in here have really strong faith. While some of us really struggle with faith, maybe currently we struggle with having a a weak faith in here. But what saves us is not the quality of our faith. What saves us is the quality of the person we're putting our faith in. So if your faith is in Christ, you'll be saved. That's what we see in this story. Weak faith, strong faith. It's not faith that saves, it's faith in Christ that saves. He is our Savior. He is the one who's able. And that's what we see in verse 29. So she has this plan. It's a good plan, but not a perfect plan. But she goes up, touches Jesus in verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up. Can you believe it? Twelve years of physical, emotional, financial, religious suffering gone in a single moment at the touch of Jesus Christ. Please notice that she tried doctor after doctor after doctor. The best the world had to offer. All the doctors in the world couldn't help this woman. So in the story, we just see the world being seen as this weak and ineffectual thing, while Jesus is seen as stupendously powerful. What they tried to do for 12 years, Jesus did in a single moment without even knowing he was doing it. You see how much more powerful Jesus is in the world? Okay, so I've always loved verse 30. Just a cool verse. Jesus, here's the phrase, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. I just, I just loved that. I don't know what that was. I don't know if he felt a zap or something or, or just felt a little more physically tired. I don't know what it was. But the woman had planned to get in, get done, get gone without Jesus noticing, but Jesus noticed. He said, wait a second, something's happened. And he stops. And what we see is that, verse 30, he immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now this is shocking to the disciples in verse 31. Look what they say. They say, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Hundreds of people are all around him. Okay? You know, like when you're leaving a Tennessee football game and you feel like a sardine and you're like trying to get through. Imagine that moment screaming out, who touched me? I mean, a hundred people could raise their hand at that moment and say, uh, well, I think I did just a second ago. And, I mean, th- that question makes no sense at all. But Jesus, in his sovereign knowledge and wisdom, knew that there was one touch in the crowd that was unique. He felt the touch of faith, and he was insistent 
on finding this person. Consider verse 32, where it says, And he looked around to see who had done it. This phrase, looked around, implies that he didn't just ask the question and move on. He didn't say, who touched me? But he, he said, who touched me? And then he started to look around. It was like a game of Where's Waldo? And Jesus was going to search until he found this one person who touched him. He was intent on this mission. So eventually, um, maybe, you know, she waited out and she's like, wait, this man's really going to look until he finds me. So verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The fear here might be from the fact that she did break. You know, if you're unclean, you touch somebody, you make them unclean. So she just took a risk by touching Jesus and maybe she's thinking, I, I finally got my healing after 12 years, and now I've been caught. And this man's going to punish me. Maybe I'm going to face his wrath. But how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 34. Daughter. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. First, I want you to notice that he calls her daughter. What a warm title for him to give this moment. This woman, currently at the lowest of the low in society, he, she's been unclean for 12 years, extremely poor and outcast, but he looks at her and gives her a title of dignity and passion and compassion by showing her love and saying, daughter. Second, um, he makes a theological distinction here. Jesus wants to disciple this woman with the truth. Maybe this is one of the main reasons why he called her out of the crowd, was not to just let her you know, think, oh, I touched something and that's what saved me. The garment's magical and I touched the magical garment. No, he makes the theological distinction here and says, look, your faith has made you well. That's what saved you. Your, your faith, your trust, your, your, your belief in me is what has done it. And then he blesses her and says, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Go in peace. This woman has been made physically and spiritually whole. She's at peace with God and also at peace with her body now. And we see this is a permanent peace. It's not going to, you know, blood's not going to come up a couple weeks later or something like that. He says, go and be healed. You see that? This is a permanent thing. She's not going to lose it. She has been permanently healed by the power of Jesus Christ according to the faith that she placed in him. She could sing like David. Psalm 30, we read this this week. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saint, and give thanks to his holy name for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That's what this woman could sing in this moment. She's received peace from Jesus Christ by placing her faith in Him. What a wonderful story, right? I mean, what a blessing to read God's Word together this morning. But I want to remind you of what I named this point. The excruciating delay. Beautiful story of this woman, but I want you to consider how Jairus felt with all this going on. He's trying to hurry to his home, but the great crowd thronged about him. There is no time to waste, but Jesus stops and asks who touched him. Can you imagine Jairus in that moment? Who touched me, Jesus? Then Jesus takes the time to search for this person. He looks around. 
takes his time, finds her, finally finds the woman, and then what does the woman do? He tells Jesus the whole truth. She doesn't summarize. I mean, could you imagine being Jairus here? I'm sure you're like, can you please shut up? I, w- my daughter is at death's door, and I'm here in your whole 12-year history here. You feel the urgency. And while Jesus is still speaking to this woman, while he's saying, daughter, your faith is healed. Oh, our hearts sing at that. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Oh, our hearts sing at that. Look what it says in verse 35. While he was still speaking, while he's still talking to this woman, this, this excruciating delay, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. This beautiful spiritual high immediately met while he's blessing this woman with, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Could you imagine this heavy news? Their journey was in vain. Jairus had to be devastated. I mean, he obviously loved his daughter with his whole heart. You see that not just from common sense, but also from the great efforts he's gone to find Jesus and implore him in this situation. And seemingly because of this delay, because of this woman who had an issue of blood, which, is, which was suffering, but you know, she's dealt with it for some time, it wasn't urgent, possibly, as maybe he felt. Because of, of this healing, his daughter was dead. They were too late. And the people from his house say, why trouble the teacher anymore? Just give it up, Jairus, it's over. This desperate situation has now become a hopeless situation. Let me correct that. These people thought it was a hopeless situation. Namely, due to their identification of Jesus. Did you see it? Why trouble the teacher anymore? But as we know, Jesus is not merely a teacher. He is not merely a man. The one thing we've seen in Mark is that Jesus is not just a teacher, but he is the Son of the Most High God. And that leads us to our last point, the cheerful surprise. Look at verse 35. While he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, um, sorry, verse 36, but overhearing what they said. That's what I want to see right there. But overhearing what they said. It's an interesting word here. Um, the footnote in the ESV says, or ignoring. Maybe yours says that as well. I think the NIV also has a footnote that says, or ignoring. This word literally is to ignore or to fail to listen or to disregard. So Jesus hears the messengers say that Jairus' daughter was dead, but Jesus ignores the report. He overlooks it. He rejects it. And he turns to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, in verse 36, and says, Do not fear, only believe. Is that not beautiful? Two commands in the one phrase. Command one, do not fear. Command number two, only believe. Just like we said a couple weeks ago, Faith is to fear like light is to darkness. The presence of one dispels the other. So in this verse, in this command, Jesus puts these two as opposite and opposing choices. Jairus, in this moment, faced with his daughter's death, could either fear or believe. And I hope you notice how easy it would be in this moment to fear. Right? I mean, we're not dealing with an unfounded fear. It's not like Jairus is currently anxious over something that might happen. 
No, no, his greatest fear just came true. He just got a report that his daughter has died. His daughter is not at death's door. She's gone through death's door. But Jesus commands Jairus to believe and not to fear. For Jairus to believe, he would have to ignore his current circumstances just like Jesus ignored the report he overheard. He would have to value Jesus' word over the world's word. He would have to walk by faith and not by sight. Do you see that? Because sight was clearly saying it's over. While Jesus is clearly saying here in this command, it's not over. And every logical thing at the moment seemed to suggest that sight was correct. I mean, this would be so hard to believe unless you consider the trustworthiness of the one saying it. This is not some crazed optimist. This is not some foolish person. No, this is Jesus Christ, full of wisdom and knowledge and authority. And we don't always have a tragic crisis like Jairus in this passage. But we are faced with this decision every day and moment of our lives. Are we going to walk by sight or are we going to walk by faith? Are we going to be filled with fear or are we going to be filled with belief? Are we going to have the determining factor of our lives be the world's word or Christ's word? Friends, Jesus is worthy to be trusted today. This is a hard moment. This is a hard thing for Jairus to obey. How is he supposed to believe Jesus in this dark moment right on the heels of hearing that his daughter is dead? But Jesus calls him to it, and I think he's calling us to believe in hard times as well. Jairus chose to believe. We see in verse 37, Jesus separates from the crowd, even some of his disciples, and only allows his inner circle to come with him. Peter James and John, we see that in verse 37. And by the time they get to the house, as we see in verse 38, the morning is in full swing. This would be professional mourners hired. Um, so people would literally make money by coming to a house where somebody just passed away and just start wailing and making all this commotion. All this stuff's going on. And Jesus walks in and asks, verse 39, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. This seems intentionally provocative from Jesus, I think. Like he is poking the bear a little bit because all the evidence points to the child being dead. It wasn't foolish to think so for these mourners. I mean, the child was actually dead. Jesus isn't in this passage denying the child was dead, but he's asserting that the death is only temporary. And if they knew the person speaking, they would have believed it. Okay, Jesus says this child's not dead but sleeping. I've seen the dead body, but I'll believe it because who's saying it? But they don't know Jesus. So look at their response in verse 40. This should horrify you. And they laughed at him. Here we see the horror of prideful unbelief. And I'm afraid there may be some prideful unbelief here in this room at this very moment. You may hear this story, you may be encountered with the Word of God, and you may laugh, you may yawn, you may mock, you may reject, but here in this story, I hope you don't see yourself as, the, as this character, but these people, these mourners, mock Jesus. They laugh at the Creator of the universe. In their foolishness, they thought Jesus was foolish, and that they knew better. They thought they could explain the situation better than Jesus could explain the situation. And therefore, what happens to them? They're put outside. Verse 40, but he put them all outside 
their, their prideful unbelief leads them to not seeing this amazing work of God, which we see in verses 41 through 42, where Jesus takes this little girl by the hand, takes a, a dead hand, and says, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking. Everyone in the room had the right response, you see it, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. That's a good response. Imagine for the parents here the, the relief and the joy and the wonder and the love and the emotion they would be feeling in this moment to go from death's door to having somebody come back through death's door. This is unheard of. And I think we just see a beautiful picture here of the power of Jesus Christ leading to the joy of those who believe in Him. The mockers are put outside. They're separated from the joy. They're separated from the amazement. They're separated from the wonder. But those who believe in Christ have gotten to behold who Jesus is and what He can do. And then suddenly, this is is hard to believe. You you might think that um, verse 42 is hard to believe, but verse 43 is pretty hard to believe as well. Jesus looks at these parents and strictly charge them that no one should know this. That's tough. Could you imagine witnessing Jesus raising your daughter from the dead? The emotion you would feel. And he says, by the way, don't tell anybody about this. It would be a hard secret to keep. She was dead and everyone knew it. Of course, most, most suggest that rumors would probably swirl that Jesus was right. Oh, we thought she was dead, but Jesus said she was sleeping and I guess she was asleep. But those in the room where it happened, they would know that Jesus Christ had raised her back to life. And that Jesus can turn around any desperate situation. And I love how this story ends. I almost didn't touch on this. I want to touch on every part of the passage. That's my goal, right? And look at that last phrase. (laughs) Told them to give her something to eat. Uh... You almost get whiplash reading that, right? Because it goes from something so amazing, just raised a girl from the dead, to something so mundane, and make sure she has breakfast. Right? It's like both of those things. Um, But I think, you know, Jesus wants to make sure this girl gets what she wants. She's really alive. She, she, She has needs. So make sure she gets food in her. I think it shows the wisdom and the thoughtfulness of Jesus. And also, you know, if I, you know, after doing some great thing, I, I might be pretty tired, but Jesus is just like, yeah, let's, let's eat, get her something to eat. Okay, how do we apply this passage to our lives? Um, how, how should this change us? Number one, uh, we need to be encouraged by Jesus' ability and authority in this passage. Not only, as we've seen in Mark, can Jesus teach with authority like no one else. Not only can Jesus Christ physically heal lepers and men with withered hands. Not only does Jesus Christ have authority over nature, able to cease the wind and waves with a single word. Not only does Jesus Christ have authority over the demonic, where they ask him for permission to do any little thing. But here in the story, we see that Jesus Christ has the authority over death itself. Someone can die, and Jesus Christ can make the decision for them to come back to life again. And brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Christ who responded to faith by raising this little girl to life has promised that he will raise from the dead all of those who come to him in faith. We saw that right here in the baptisms today. 
where Jesus can raise somebody from spiritual death to spiritual life. But I also want to suggest that we're going to see it in the future where Christ literally and physically raises from the dead all those who have believed in him. That's what we see in John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Right here we just get a small foreshadowing, a whisper of what's to come for all of us, where we will walk through death's door, and we will be buried in the grave, all of us. But one day, if we have faith in Christ, we will be raised from the dead to newness of life for all eternity. It's good news. And Jesus' ability and authority to do these things should lead us to obey His command in this passage to do not fear, only believe. Not only when it comes to the desperate situation of death, the king of terrors, some have called it, but also in all of our desperate situations, no matter what it is. However... We need to balance this application when it comes to our lives. We could be tempted to read this story, see the immediate healing, and say, wrongly, if I go to Jesus, he will immediately fix all my problems. You could go around and ask some questions in the room if that's how it works. That's not always how it works, right? Sometimes we have problems, we go to Jesus, and they're not immediately solved. We have no promise in Scripture that says, we will always get immediate healing like these two women do in this story. But, I want to say, he can do it. We see that in the story. He has the ability. He, he may do it. I want to tell you, you should pray for it because he can and he will and he does. But, it doesn't always work that way, does it? Okay, with that said, the, the question I want to ask is, what encouragement is this passage to people in the room who are in desperate situations. How, does, how, how can this passage of immediate healing, of Jesus responding to desperate situations with immediate fixes, encourage people when we might not always experience that immediate fix of faith? Here's what I think. I don't want Christians in this room to read this story and think, he may do this for me, he may not. I don't want you to think that. Mainly. I think the main controlling thought we should have as we read these two stories is that Jesus Christ has already accomplished this for you in Christ. Have you considered that the smallest sin is more terrible than the most horrific tragedy? That the smallest sin is worse than the most horrific thing you could go through. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you feel desperate financially, physically, emotionally, whatever. But those things will only last for a hundred years at most. Have you thought about that? I want to, in this passage, give you a vision of forever. A vision of eternity. And I want you to think about how Jesus saw you in your desperate state, not with one single small sin, but with millions of sins. Jesus saw you in your desperate state, deserving an eternity in hell, where you would desperately suffer forever and ever and ever and ever. And He has delivered you from it through the cross. 
where he has shown you mercy and grace and compassion. He has paid the price. He has forgiven you of your sins. He has raised you from death to life. And I don't want to make light of your current desperate situation. Not at all. Not whatsoever. But the Bible says when you compare your current situation to eternity and the glory that you will experience forever and ever, your desperate situation is light. I know it's hard to believe, but that's exactly what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.15. For this light, momentary affliction. That's what light and momentary. This light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So yes, I want you to view this passage as a potential reality in your life. I do. A potential reality. The power and authority and mercy of Jesus Christ can completely save you from your desperate situation in a single moment. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. Jesus Christ can heal. Jesus Christ can turn situations around. But, mainly I want you to focus on this morning the fact that the power, authority, and mercy of Jesus Christ is a current reality of your life. Not that you might experience this story, but in Christ you have experienced this story. Your biggest problem has been solved. Your sins are forgiven. You have been delivered from hell. In all other desperate situations compared to that are small. Think about the great hymn, Amazing Grace. The very end, you know the words well. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. I want you to consider how you'll feel about your current desperate situation after 9,987 years. Not to make a lot of the suffering you're going through at all, but think about the promise we have in eternal life. Think about the desperate situation you were in in your sin and at a single touch of faith, Jesus Christ has delivered you from all of it. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Jesus Christ saves people in desperate situations. He currently answers prayers. He still heals. He can reconcile impossible relationships. He's able to do that right now completely believe that, but I don't want you to forget that your most desperate situation has been solved already through faith in Jesus Christ. This story is your story, and he has declared the work to be finished. So as we close, I just want to ask, has he saved you from this desperate situation? Has he forgiven you of your sins? I invite you to come to Christ today in faith, just like this woman. It doesn't have to be a perfect faith. It just has to be faith. He has to be trusting in Jesus to get on the boat of Jesus Christ and say, He is going to take me to my destination of this eternity. He can forgive me of my sins. If you're a Christian in this room, pray that you can have a vision of eternity in your present suffering, knowing that He can, He will, but ultimately in the future we know for certain that He will remove and wipe away every tear that we have. That's the promise we have in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, for every broken heart in this room, says that you, you save the brokenhearted. You're near to the brokenhearted. Um, God, that you, you notice 
people in their desperate situations. And, and your word says to cast our cares upon you, for you care about us. And so, God, we just confess. God, I don't know. I know some situations in this room, I really do, but I don't know all of them. I don't know the worries and the fears and the doubts and the suffering and the pain and the hardships and the struggles. God, I don't know any of it comparatively, but you know every single one of it. So God, I pray, number one, that we can just, just relish in our eternal hope this morning. God, and I pray for those suffering that they will look to you, look to the future. God, firmly place their hope in you. God, knowing that this story isn't a potential reality for those in Christ, but it's a current reality. God, I pray for those who don't know you, God, that are far from you. God, I pray that they can come to you this morning. God, I, um, Pastor Chad's right in the back. God, I pray that you'll give them the, the, the courage to go back there and talk to him if they have any questions about faith. God, I pray for you to save the lost, and I pray for you to strengthen the saved in this moment as we respond to you in, in, in pure thanksgiving for the salvation we've received in Christ. In your name, Jesus. Amen.